Good morning, everybody. Welcome to worship here at First Prez. Everybody doing okay? Well enough to be here, seated. Grateful for that. My name is Dave Palmer, uh, Director of University Ministries, and uh, grateful to be with you all this morning in this capacity. Uh, first, uh, a pastoral announcement to make uh, before I continue on in the sermon. Erin um, Palmer, also known as my wife, is pregnant. So that's awesome. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, somewhere between 14 and 16 weeks or something like that. We're excited. Speaking of uh, pregnancy, uh, change is hard. I don't know if you've experienced that before. Maybe just waking up in the morning can be difficult or growing old. Change can be hard, but especially the sort of change that we choose. Deep personal life change can be really, really challenging. That sort of change means leaving something really familiar for perhaps something that's not familiar. The unknown can be scary. And that sort of change requires vulnerability. And I don't know about you, but vulnerability is not the most comfortable state to be in. And when we experience deep personal life change, something that perhaps changes our basic worldview, like choosing faith in Jesus, it means a total change in our identity of how people see us. Relationships can change too, and that's not easy. Change can be very hard. This is the third week in a series we've been uh, calling Thresholds, where we're um, uh, talking about five significant thresholds, um, markers that we uh, uh, cross from one place to another um, that people typically pass through in, in their journey on their way to saying yes to Jesus. This morning we're talking about a threshold uh, of going from being closed to change to open to change. Closed to change to open to change. And I've heard it said uh, by somebody uh, who's reputable, I think Eric Hansen is, uh, that this is the most important of the thresholds. And whether you do not know Jesus now or you have been following Jesus for a long time, I believe this threshold is still very, very relevant for us. Are we always opening ourselves to change in Christ? There is not one particular formula that I can uh, uh, gather when reading Scripture about how people literally move from being open to change, or excuse me, from being close to change to open to change. There's not one particular thing that we can do um, to magically make that happen. As, as hard as um, some of our uh, best evangelical organizations can muster uh, guidebooks, I, I'm not convinced that it's true, one thing's true for everybody. And, uh, and so, unfortunately, I'm not going to have some silver bullet for you um, to, uh, to initiate uh, in a relationship that you deeply care about. Not one particular formula about how it happens. However, I think we see clearly demonstrated in the life of Jesus that there is one clear environment that must exist for us in order for us to choose to be open to the sort of change that Jesus is calling us to. And so this morning, we're going to talk about that environment. In college, I was determined to join a fraternity so that I could share the love and gospel of Jesus Christ with my peers 
in a community that generally was not very exposed to Jesus or his gospel. I went to the University of Washington uh, in Seattle, um, and I signed with the Alpha Delta chapter of Pi Kappa Phi on 17th Street, right in the heart of Greek Row. And it was a house that, when you think about like Greek life, this was like the house, right? Four white columns with our beautiful Greek letters in between, and gorgeous 100-year-old chestnut trees outside. And of course, the whole thing was a facade, right? Because the inside was a total dump. Uh, <laughs> trust me, I lived there for three years in this house. And so I, I, I joined this fraternity feeling called by the Lord um, to, uh, to, to, to share Jesus with my peers. And so I took to quickly establishing myself as a Christian in this very um, unchristian environment. And what I discovered is that most of these guys were making very ungodly decisions. Imagine that. I couldn't believe it. Wow, these, these heathens, the things they do on Friday night, let alone Sunday night. My goodness. And I was absolutely resolute to demonstrate what the Christian life looked like. These guys needed to know what it looked like to be a good Christian. So I created a clear separation from their poor choices. Without them knowing what it was that they were doing wrong, I felt complicit with their poor behavior. They needed to know their decisions were wrong. And so I communicated my disapproval in silent judgment and distance. The Christian life desperately needed to be clarified in this dark, dark world of Pi Kappa Phi. And here was the result. Nobody likes me. <laughs> Nobody liked me. I had a few Christian friends in the house, particularly this one guy named AJ, and we're, we're still friends. And I think I even had to manipulate AJ into being my friend. I was such a jerk. The people I had set out to save, save, oh man, were repelled from me and sadly from Jesus. This morning we're going to turn to Jesus to show us a better way. Our passage comes in Luke 19. This is a, a moment, perhaps if, if you're familiar with Scripture, you've read before. If you're not familiar with Scripture, I'm excited for you because this is such an amazing, amazing moment. And so maybe if you have heard it, pretend like you haven't. Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Zacchaeus, uh, he was uh, Hebrew, he was Jewish, and his Hebrew name actually meant pure or innocent which I'm sure the people in his time would have uh, been able to at least chuckle about in lighter spirits because they saw him as neither pure nor innocent. As a chief tax collector, he was understood to be complicit with the evil Roman Empire. The local, um, the local yokel who saw an advantage uh, uh, in being a tax collector financially at the expense of being a traitor politically and socially and perhaps even religiously to his community. There were few people as reviled in the first century as tax collectors. And Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector. 
verse 3, he, Zacchaeus, wanted to see Jesus, to see who he was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you lousy traitor. No, no, no. Oh, excuse me. That's what I would have said. No, no, no. He said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be with uh, the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, here and now I give back half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody, anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has came to seek and to save the lost. Notice the environment that Jesus created for Zacchaeus and even his friends. Here's what Jesus did not do what Jesus did not do. He f- did not act in fear of Zacchaeus' sin as if he had some sort of communicable virus. He did not walk around with a moral hazmat suit on, afraid that somehow he would be af- infected by this wretched disease that Zacchaeus had and that he didn't. Jesus didn't see befriending Zacchaeus as being complicit with Zacchaeus's sin. Jesus didn't see being friends with Zacchaeus as being complicit with Zacchaeus's sins. And he was, uh, he was, Jesus also did not comfortably join the crowd, which would have been so easy to do, right? Comfortably join the crowd, the popular, um, the popular voice to say, Zacchaeus, gosh, dude, really? You're such a bum on so many levels. So easy to judge Zacchaeus. So easy. Instead, this is what Jesus did do. Jesus invited himself. He invited himself into Zacchaeus's intimate world. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never invited myself over to anyone's home so brazenly. Usually I'm a little bit more passive-aggressive when I want to come over for dinner. But here Jesus straight up is like, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. You look kind of ridiculous up there, and I would love to have dinner with you. We've talked about hospitality here at First Pres uh, in the calendar year, if you've been with us. It's, it's such an important aspect of what it means for us to live out the gospel of Jesus in our community in Boulder here today. Hospitality, the love of strangers. And in the first century, and we've talked about this before, but in the first century, 
Inviting somebody into your home to break bread, to share a meal, is perhaps the most intimate way that you can physically invite someone into your space and to show acceptance and affection and love. And this is exactly what Jesus invites himself into. I don't think it's that different for us today, right? Inviting people into our homes. And Jesus just invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. Jesus, uh, mind you, doesn't have a home quite like Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is wealthy, so perhaps he has a nice home. So Jesus perhaps was also hungry. Perhaps it was pragmatic. I don't know. But either way, the statement that Jesus makes is so profound. Because when he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house with your people, he declared that he intended to be friends. He declared he, declared he intended to be a friend with Zacchaeus and the other tax collectors. Not just a project. If Zacchaeus was a project, he would have just preached from him up into the tree, right? What a captive audience. He can't go anywhere. But Zacchaeus is not a project. He is a friend of Jesus. What Jesus did do at the very um, baseline is he affirmed the humanity of Zacchaeus, his value, his infinite lovability. The infinite lovability of Zacchaeus is what Jesus affirmed before uh, Zacchaeus had made any sort of changes. So this is what we learn about change through, through Jesus' example. I believe this is true. This is true for Zacchaeus, and I believe this is true for us as well, including myself, is this, that we are open to change when we believe that love is open to us. We are open to change when we believe that love is open to us. What did Jesus say to Zacchaeus over dinner that would have led him to actually choose change so profound in his life that he was willing to part with so much wealth? Nobody knows, actually, what Jesus said over dinner. Nobody knows. No doubt there was truth spoken. Perhaps it was the truth of what Jesus was speaking in the community of Jericho before Zacchaeus came to dinner, or perhaps it was truth that Jesus spoke um, over dinner, that conversation. And I want to make perfectly clear that um, perhaps some of you are listening to me and say, Dave, you're preaching a soft gospel right now. Come on. I've heard this love garbage before. What we need is hard truth. But here, here I think, is what is so important for us. Truth without love can damage. But truth with love has the power to change us in a life-changing way. That's exactly what Jesus does with Zacchaeus. No doubt there was truth spoken. But for us this morning, I want to draw us to the environment that Jesus created. Back to Fraternity Dave. So there was this one night, seven months into the uh, great, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) evangelical Fraternity Dave experience that was turning out very poorly, as you might imagine. One night, I was on the, uh, the corner of 17th and 47th. I still remember vividly right next to the Cayo Annex, and I think I was with AJ. And we ran into one of my fraternity brothers who was drunk. And my kind of instant reaction was like recoil. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm actually seeing him drunk here. My complicit, 
you know, or my church friends see me talking to my guy right now. Fortunately for me, uh, the inebriation of my friend was, was actually a great tool in that moment because he was, uh, uh, for the first time, chatty with me. And, um, and so he struck up a conversation. Gratefully for, you know, grateful for that. He struck up a conversation, and, and we started um, talking like two humans do, perhaps two friends or fraternity brothers you would expect to interact with. And, and here's what I realized, is that um, I, I didn't actually absorb his um, insobriety by having a conversation with him. It didn't mean I was complicit with his life choices. But I tried it again with him, just being like a friend to him, kind, loving, interested in his life, um, not living with a moral hazmat suit around him. And it was interesting. A, 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 a real friendship formed. A paradigm shift occurred in my mind. I realized something, that when we show genuine love through friendship towards our neighbors, our fraternity brothers, our own family perhaps, rather than judgment, that those folks would be open to us, open to me, and in turn the possibility of Jesus in life change. See, we are open to change when we believe that love is open to us. Think about it. Have you ever decided to make a really significant life change that you were, uh, it was a volitional choice, it was your choice, you were excited about it, um, it was uh, a positive decision for you that you wanted to, to make, and you made it because of the presence of judgment, rejection, fear, or even hate in your life. Has anyone made a choice like that? I'm not certain that any of us have. Being a, a, a campus, uh, uh, being on campus, uh, ministering to college students, and we interact with, and our students interact with quite a bit, um, a megaphone preachers. You know, the guys and the gals that, get out their trusty megaphone and their giant signs of condemnation and cruise around campus and yell things into the, to the megaphone. And most of the time, these guys and gals are actually quoting scripture. It's like, okay, wow, that's, that's a good one you found from Leviticus. Thank you. <laughs> most of the time, it's out of context. And every once in a while, it feels relatively contextual. But here's what I've noticed. I've been around university campuses since 2001, and I don't know one person who has heard the truth of Jesus Christ in that environment and decided to change their life. If anything, animosity entrenches us further in our mindset, doesn't it? It entrenches us further in our mindset. Consider, I, I've done this before. Have you ever been in a spot where you know you're wrong? You know, it's like this wall is pink, but you're calling it violet. And you know it's pink, but it's violet. And the person you're in an argument with will not let it go. And they are just giving you heck about it. Even when you're wrong, you're going to double down. Dig your heels in, right? That's so intuitive for us. We don't change our mind when we're threatened that way. See, we are open to change when we believe that love is open to us. And here's the good news. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of walls. 
It is not a kingdom that needs protecting from the immoral decay of the world. It is a kingdom exactly for the humans living in immorality. It is a kingdom that is unafraid of the taint of sin, unashamed of the outcast, and fearless of death. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of insiders. Indeed, every citizen in God's kingdom was once a stranger, shown hospitality, the love to strangers, an outcast, up a tree, hoping against hope that someone would see them and love them to the core, seeing their infinite lovability. There's no one in God's kingdom that does not fit that category. Our mission as a church is to surprise Boulder with the gospel of Jesus through relational connection and spiritual discovery. To surprise Boulder. Friends, this is the sort of environment that we need to create if we want to surprise Boulder. On Wednesday, I was uh, myself surprised by Boulder. Uh, I was walking home just almost a block away from my house, and I was uh, deep in thought. I had my giant uh, millennial headphones on, um, very absorbed in the music I was listening to. You, You know the ones. Can you believe all those young hooligans walking around on the street, clueless to the world, listening to their music. That was me. And, um, and somehow, through the noise and the, the great audio quality protection of my headphones, I heard this voice yelling at me. Hey, hey, can you park a car? Can you parallel park a car? And I look over, and there is a woman parked in the middle of the street yelling at me, asking if I would park her car. Like, this is a new one. And, uh, and so I say, you know, in my mind, of course, you know, my, my masculine ego goes, yeah, I can parallel park a car. Come on, you know. <laughs> oh, I see you have that car before, you know, the, the, the mirror's in the back. You know, the camera's in the back. No problem. I got this one. Uh, compact SUV shouldn't be a problem. So, I, you know, hey, she's like, hey, hop in my car. I'm like, eh, not going to hop in your car. Uh, But what I will do is uh, you pull ahead to where you want me to park, and I'll park your car. So uh, the whole thing's very odd. I hop in the car, and the car uh, is very odorous of cigarette smoke. And I also notice um, uh, an an open can of malt liquor in uh, in in the cup holder. This is my neighbor, and she's drunk, and she can't park her car. And I have to tell you, man, my moral compass is just like, are you kidding me? Well, uh, I'm in the car, I'm committed, I park it, and I have to give her some credit. It was a really tricky parking spot. You know, it's like one of those under an apartment building with like, like concrete columns on either side that's just waiting to destroy your car. Um, so anyway, so I park the car, she thanks me, I, you, know, you know, no problem, no problem, I'm here to help. And I walk home. I don't know if she knows that we're neighbors. The next day, the next day, I'm walking home. I've got my headphones on. It was a hard day. I've got my hat down low. I'm like a brooding millennial. Just walking home. And I see feet at the last second underneath the brim of my hat. And it's, you know, personal policy. It feels nice to acknowledge the presence of a human when they're walking past you. 
And so at the last second, I flip my head up and give a perhaps forced smile to this person walking past me. And about half a second as I pass, I realize it's my neighbor walking downtown, probably sober, perhaps filled with shame. I don't know. I didn't even have a chance to say hello to her. And in a flash, I thought, I cannot this is my neighborhood. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old son that lives in my neighborhood with a reckless, drunk driver as my neighbor. How despicable of her. And then the, the Spirit, I believe, spoke to me uh, truer, better words. What is it in her life that would lead her to drive home drunk in the afternoon, in the middle of the week? And some of the clues that I saw around her world, she was probably a mother, maybe a single mom. Probably desperate for change. Friends, I have to tell you, there are a lot of neighbors like that in my neighborhood. Are there in yours? Desperate for change. Desperate to know that they are infinitely lovable. And here's the deal. They need so deeply and so badly first to know the environment of the kingdom that we are inviting them into, that we are citizens of. A kingdom that loves them. So let's do that. I'd like to invite uh, Dean Stoll to come up and to share a bit about his story and his experience of change. Good morning. great, Dave. I love that. So for decades, I've asked myself this question. Why was it so hard for me to find Jesus? Now I'm reminded that God was with me every step of that journey. So here's the start of my story. So my family was living the American dream post-World War II. Loving mom, loving dad, new job, new car, house, three boys. We lived in Littleton, where all the roads were dirt, and there was lots of open space where we could roam. Sunday mornings were for fishing, and life was good. I only remember going to church once with a, as a family, and one other time with a childhood friend. It just wasn't part of our life. But life for us changed on a Sunday in 1961. We were excited, heading out on vacation, driving the station wagon, trailer behind, near Idaho Springs, when a, jack, when a semi jackknifed in front of us. My mom was killed, my dad seriously injured. I was 11, I can tell you I can remember every detail, every smell, everything. I was suddenly lost. I felt abandoned. My dad, he wasn't equipped to deal with the emotional pain that followed or the physical pain that followed, and they stuck with him really the rest of his life. <clears throat> he kept the family together by sheer will, but the three boys, we were on our own. We had no limits. So I looked for support in the usual places, friends, family, neighbors, and in some concept of God that I had at that time. 
I can't count how many times I asked the question, why did God take away my mom? I never got an answer, so I decided God wasn't there for me. Over the next 10 years, God had a different plan, and he did show up in my life through people to support me, encourage me, feed me, steer me back toward him. First, it was my friends, but more so my friends' mothers. So if you have a mother out there, take note. They adopted me. I especially remember Mike, Steve, and Sandy's moms. There was always a meal, always a place to sleep, a place to hang out. Even when I was running down the wrong road, they were always there, and they never judged. They were there and available. But later, God sent other people, particularly teachers. So my senior or my high school years began with a science teacher, and his name was Stan, and he invited me to join a science club. Or really, he sort of talked me into it. And that opened my eyes to a whole new world of science. And he became, over time, a mentor and advisor and actually my advocate because I didn't have others. Well, junior year, God sent one particular neighbor friend into my life in a very new way. And this neighbor was a friend since we were two years old, and, and her name was Nora. Some, does that ring a bell to anybody? She and her family were a wonderful Christian family, and through them, it sort of piqued my curiosity about God again. I still kept a distance, wasn't sure, but at least I was curious. Well, by college, the whole God and religion thing had become academic to me. I was on a quest to understand God, but not know God. Meanwhile, Nora and I were married in college, and that was 47 years ago. She stuck with me. She experienced innumerable discussions, debates, and conversations about religion and God. Sometimes I was angry. Sometimes I was pretty difficult. But she came through those with patience and faith in me and understanding that persevered. In graduate school, discussions in my research group often turned to repeated topics familiar to most of us like, God does not understand quantum chemistry. I often joyfully jumped into those debates, wanting to win on the side of quantum chemistry. At the time we were visiting First Pres, I had an academic curiosity, and I had promised Nora that I would go with her. I'd promised. One Sunday, I was in a corner in the parlor, waiting to leave, and I looked up across the room and noticed that Pastor Bob Erder had just left the chapel. And he made eye contact. And he wound his way straight to me in the corner. And I looked for an escape. <laughs> but I was cornered. So he introduced himself to me, and he knew instantly that I was a work in progress. And he told me, quote, we need to talk. And he became a mentor over the next several years. But soon after that, during one of his sermons, he reminded us that Jesus offered an open invitation to come in, an open invitation, no strings attached. All we had to do was walk up to the door and go in. And I know in, in, in that sanctuary at the time, he was looking right at me. And in my mind, I couldn't get that phrase out of my mind, just open the door. So I went away carrying that with me, and I noticed that my next research debate I took the side of the Christian. 
And I thought, I'm confused, confused myself. But I also understood for the first time, and still, I'm, I remark this to myself now, that if God is God, he surely knows more chemistry than I do. And that was a revelation. Later that week, I was ready. I walked up. Maybe I tiptoed a bit. But I opened the door. Jesus came into my life, which ended a 12-year journey for me. So what did I do? I ran home. I told Nora. She didn't look surprised. She just said, I knew it was just a matter of time. She was always with me. So walking with Jesus didn't answer all my questions, didn't bring my mom back. But life with Jesus is, is also a challenge. It has full of mysteries and contradictions, but it's mostly full of love, grace, and the wonder to know that we'll have eternity in God's presence. So for 45 years, I've been striving to follow Jesus every day. And that's my story, simple enough. I think we have a song now, right? Thank you.